As we read that text tonight, a few different questions might come to mind. You might wonder, how is Jeremy going to preach that whole thing in 20 minutes? (laughs) You might wonder, um, what does any of that have to do with Christmas? Sounds like maybe it's a bizarre Christmas text, a a bizarre text to have read at a Christmas Eve service that, that we gather together to hear. Well, let me share tonight these words from the song we just sang before we came up here. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Last Sunday, we talked about the extent of that curse, right? Far as the curse is found. Well, how far is the curse found? I said last week, essentially I was preaching a two-part sermon last Sunday and into this Christmas Eve. The outline of that one long sermon stretched over two weekends is this. First, we saw our great need. Do you remember this? We looked at it together from Zechariah chapter 11. We're working our way through the book of Zechariah as a church family. Um, So to remind us or set the stage for tonight, for those of you who weren't there last week, first in Zechariah 11, we see this glimpse forward. We see this glimpse forward of what God would do in the end to save his people, right? So there's this good news that God's going to redeem the world, that he's going to prepare his place for his people again, that he's going to rid the earth of wickedness. He's going to get rid of it, right? There's this glimpse forward that shows us that, and it causes the readers to wonder, you know, how on earth is that going to happen? Knowing the circumstances that they were in then, it seems so far off. But that glimpse forward is then followed by something that would make it even, seem even more far off. It's followed by a look backward toward the central problem that they're facing. And, you know, was the central problem some enemy that was oppressing them? Was it Persia? Was it Greece yet to come? Was it the Romans who would come after them? No, it it was actually the central problem of sin and rebellion. Sin and rebellion of the people of God against God himself. Do you remember the way that God's people were described in Zechariah chapter 11? We'll come back to it, but in verse 4 they were talked about as sheep doomed to slaughter, right? They were like, the image here is this, this group of sheep just kind of happily running into the slaughterhouse. The, the voices of the prophets saying, stop, no, don't you know what you're doing? And, and yet they were just ignoring the prophets, throwing money at the prophets, telling them to go away, happily strolling into the slaughterhouse. And, and so God essentially gives them over to their sin And then finally, so the glimpse forward of hope, the look backward of their sin, this big chasm between them, and finally this focus on the here and now in the text in which what do we have to do? We have, uh, the God's people during this time have to wait for the Lord to come and do what they so obviously can't do for themselves. There's this anticipation. God, if this is going to happen, you're going to have to be the one to come. So chapter 11 points us to our great need. Our great need, right? And you know, verses 1 through 9 of our text tonight Give, give you a 15-second summary. It starts out by focusing on the exact same thing, right? After this realization that God's people are waiting for God to do what we can't do for ourselves, we see this depiction of the nations gathered against God's people. You know, these people who were predatory rather than protective of God's people. They were taking advantage and oppressing them rather than seeking for their good. They're gathered against Jerusalem, and we see the same glimpse forward in which God essentially promises he's going to save. God's promise is for salvation. He will save us. And yet the readers of this prophecy 
are currently, remember, presently being ruled over by those who are predatory rather than protective. They're ruled over by those who hate God's word. They're ruled over by those who are drawing God's people away from them. And so they're crying out collectively, how long, O Lord? They're crying out essentially, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel. This this one who's to come that the prophets have been telling us about for, for so long, anticipating this salvation, wondering, How on earth could this possibly take place? And it's from that great recognition of our our neediness, this realization of our great need, that we now come to the text that we'll focus on tonight. Just three verses in which we'll see God's great answer. And and these three verses essentially are are the central verses to the entire chapter, to the entire section. So by focusing in here, I think we'll get a good picture of of what this text is about. Let me pray, and then we will dive in together, Lord. Um, Christmas Eve. Our heads and our hearts are thinking about um, so, so much celebration that we anticipate tonight and into tomorrow. We pray that you'd be at the center of our, our celebration, and we, you, you'd be the reason for it, that you wouldn't just be the surprise hiding in the closet of our, of our celebration, but... Lord, um, that you'd be at, at the center and that, that really tonight, the joy that we experience wherever that we go after we leave here and tomorrow morning as we awaken on Christmas Day, that the joy that we experience would be greatly enhanced by your word pointing us to Jesus. And, and so we pray that you'd do that spirit of God in Jesus' name. Amen. So our great need last week, God's great answer tonight. Let's look at the text. Chapter 12, starting in verse 10. We're going to do 10, 11, and then 13.1. And I'll summarize the rest. Okay. 10.11 and 13.1. Okay, so, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning in Hadad Ramon, in the place of Megiddo. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this chapter, which begins by creating a longing for God to save His people when we couldn't save ourselves, now shows us the only means by which that can happen. Incarnation. God himself entering human history to save. The great writer C.S. Lewis famously argued that the incarnation of God is the central miracle on the pages of Scripture. There's simply no possible way that we could have been made right before the Lord if he doesn't first come to us. Like We can't move toward him unless he first comes to us, unless he steps into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. In order to save his people, God had to come. And in coming and becoming human and putting on flesh and dwelling among us as we heard tonight. He's able to do that for which his people have been longing, that which his people are unable to do themselves. Right? He's able to save. Lewis elaborates, and I've used this quote before in Christmas's past, in Advent's past. But it's particularly fitting for the text tonight. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space 
down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. This is a perfect image for the text tonight because God coming to bring restoration to the bro- this broken world and the means through which he would do that is precisely what God's promised to do throughout this prophecy, throughout Zechariah as we've been reading through it together. But now we get this really surprising clarity related to how he's going to do it. And we receive it in th- by, by seeing in the text three realities of the Incarnation. So if you're taking notes tonight, that's the outline of our section. Three realities of the Incarnation. First, we see the miracle of the Incarnation. What exactly is it? What's the doctrine of the Incarnation? When you hear Christians using that word, what does it mean? Second, we see the purpose of the Incarnation. What did God set out to accomplish in it? And then finally, the outcome. What's the end result? So in our text, the miracle, the purpose, and the outcome of the Incarnation. Let's look first at the miracle. Just the first part of verse 10, and by the way, we're going to read verse 10 a lot tonight, so it'd be useful to have your text open, your Bibles open, and looking at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. So let's stop there. Look at this text carefully. Let's begin just examining this front end. This is the Lord, okay, this is an oracle, right? So this is the Lord speaking directly through his prophet to his people. And he says this, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And this grace and mercy, as we're going to see in the text, is actually active. It's accomplishing something. And we'll get there. We'll get there. But first, let's just, add, let's just observe this. This incarnation of God is at its very center motivated by sheer grace and mercy, right? Like, any discussion about what the incarnation is or what we mean by the word incarnation as Christians has to include, it has to include that it was not earned. It wasn't brought about on our own merit, on the people's merit. God wasn't waiting. You know, like it's, we preached through Genesis. We should know, right? We preached through Genesis and Nehemiah and Jonah and now through Zechariah. And every Old Testament text that we preach through, we see this repeated theme in which God isn't waiting until his people get his act together to send his son. He's not waiting until there's something kind of redeemable about us where it's like, well, let's just kind of see how this works out. I'm going to need you to convince me here. Are you really worth the effort? You know, if, if God were to do that, we'd be waiting forever. It would never happen. That was the point of this look backwards from chapter 11. That's been the point repeatedly in Zechariah, showing us our sinfulness, showing us the human condition, showing us the depth of our problem. There was the cycle of sin and rebellion among God's people in which they could never pull themselves out of it. They never pull themselves out. But God pours out a spirit of grace and mercy. That's what's offered in the incarnation of God. Grace and mercy. Sheer grace. It doesn't happen because somebody's a good enough candidate 
for God to come into this world. Because somebody impressed him enough that it's like, all right, now I'll No, sheer grace and mercy. Let's look further now. So, the embodiment of grace and mercy. Like, who is this one who's to come? Who's the shoot that comes from the house of David? Uh, and I will pour forth, pour out, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. We'll talk about what him whom they have pierced means in a minute, but for now just note that him whom they have pierced is paralleled in the text. It's identified directly with someone else. It's identified with the speaker. Right? The Lord uh, is identified. According to the grammar right, of the text, the Lord speaking through the prophet directly says, so that when they look on me, him whom they've pierced. This coming shoot, in other words, is none other than Yahweh himself. And you know, I think this is a confusing point for people reading this in Zechariah's day. Because on the one hand, they know that there's this promised one. They know that there's this one who's supposed to come and save. But you know, he's coming out of the house of David. He's like this promised future king. So he's a man. He's going to be a man. He's a human, right? On the other hand, the language that Zechariah and the prophets used to describe him is language that you really you could only use to attribute to God. So how does this, how does this work, right? Um, this is both mysterious, that God, would, that God himself could enter into human history, but it's miraculous, right? Like that he could put on flesh, human flesh. Shouldn't be surprising that the shoot is God when we remember what the scriptures have said about him up to this point. So once again, we hear these passages. Isaiah chapter 9, right? There's this, there's this um, figure throughout Zechariah known as the shoot or the branch, the one who's going to come and save his people. Listen to how Isaiah describes him. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall uh, be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Again, all of these words are attributed to that which God said he would bring to his people from this time and forevermore, forevermore. Time without limit, right? Uh, Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch uh, from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. God is telling his people, right, like, this child who is to be born, right, so he's a child who's to be born, will be called Mighty God. This child who's to be born will be described in terms that we can only attribute to God himself. So God himself will enter into human history for them. He will be born. He will be pierced. This is the miracle of the incarnation. The means by which God brings salvation is both immediately surprising, I think, to the readers and salvific in nature. Like, he comes to save. As the late great J.I. Packer writes, he says, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Right? It's miraculous. It makes sense of everything that we read on the pages of Scripture. It's the only means by which God can accomplish our salvation. This is what Lewis meant when he called the Incarnation the central miracle in Scripture. So in his book, Miracles, something I've also quoted extensively from, he writes, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the Incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this 
or results from this. And we'll talk about that even more as we go. So God himself is the one who will come into human history, but for what purpose? That's what the incarnation is. That's the miracle. God became flesh and dwelled among us, but for what purpose? What, what is he coming to fully and finally deal with? Again, the Persians, uh, the, the Greeks later on, the Romans, like What's God coming to put an end to? Look at verse 10. And I will, pour out on, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, right? Rooted in sheer grace. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, talking about Yahweh becoming man, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So here we see, well, we see really both the purpose and the outcome. But let's look at purpose first. God came to be pierced for his people. That's why. That's why the birth of Jesus takes place. God came to be pierced. And that expression to be pierced is more than simply a wound. You know, let's back up a bit. We've already seen in Zechariah that this shoot is identified as this figure that Isaiah talks about routinely, this suffering servant in Isaiah. This connection's already been made in several, at several points along the way. If you're curious about it, I invite you to go back and listen to our series as we've gone through this. But listen to how Isaiah describes this suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So do you remember last week we talked a little bit about Hebrew poetry. We talked about this, thing, this aspect of Hebrew po- poetry called parallelism. That sometimes an author in Hebrew poetry writes two things side by side. It's the exact same idea he's trying to communicate, but he's, he's using different words to, that are paralleled to do that. We see that here. Pierced and crushed are paralleled, right? Transgressions and iniquities. It's saying the same thing. Pierced is crushed. Theological shorthand for death. And just so that we don't misunderstand He continues, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So just hang in there with me for a minute. Remember in our text, the grace and mercy of God is displayed in him coming into human history to be pierced. And here we see that he's pierced and crushed. Why? For our iniquities, for our sin, bearing our punishment. Do you remember how God's people were described in the last chapter? We, we talked about it already. Chapter 11, verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So God's people, the sheep, were doomed to the slaughterhouse. They're just happily running into the slaughterhouse, ignoring the voices of the prophets. Because of their sin and rebellion, they're headed right there. And yet God says that he himself will, will be their shepherd. And how does he shepherd them? He'll enter into human history in in order to take upon himself what the sheep deserved, right? Um, So we read the rest of Isaiah alongside of what we're reading here in Zechariah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on the shoot, the Savior, that suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. God entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ to take the punishment that his people deserved upon himself at the cross, to be pierced for us at the cross, that we might have life in him. And we can say, come on, can't we talk about the incarnation without the cross? Well, tonight we can't. 
because that's what the text shows us, right? That the purpose of this incarnation was Christ going to the cross to take our sin upon himself. It's, it's its purpose. Without the incarnation, there is no cross. This is the purpose of the incarnation. Christ getting what we deserved. Punishment and wrath for sin so that we can get what he deserves. Eternal life and joy and peace. Right. What's the outcome? We've seen what it is. We've seen the purpose what happens because of this work on the cross? Because of this incarnation? This is the rest of the text. It tells us, you know, if you look here, this grace and mercy that he's going to pour out upon God's people, it's active. And it's active in bringing about, the text says, mourning. He'll pour out a spirit of grace and mercy so that they will mourn. They will look on him whom they've pierced and their disposition is changed from the last chapter in which they were throwing money at the prophet, 30 pieces of silver so that the prophet would go away and and so that the Lord would go away so they wouldn't have to hear about their sin. They wouldn't have to hear about their iniquity. They were perfectly happy in the midst of their sin. They didn't want to hear it and and now their disposition has changed from, from that to being those who mourn for him, who see their sin against the Father, who see what, what their sin has cost. It's cost the life of the Son. That mourning or wailing is described in detailed and complete forms. That's why when you look at verses 11 through the end of the chapter, it's talking about all the different families who are mourning. It's, it's giving you a picture of, of complete mourning, of genuine repentance. All of the people of God who had stood opposed to him in act of rebellion will now weep and mourn. How did that happen? God's grace changing their hearts. You know, what what are we talking about? What are we describing? Pedersen writes, what we see here is a work of God that changes the disposition of people. The implication is that those who have pierced this figure have offended Yahweh and they are deserving of his judgment, yet Yahweh in his grace has restored their relationship and moved them to grieve because of their sin and to now pray for mercy. You know? In other words, the outcome of the incarnation, the outcome of God entering into human history in the person of Jesus Christ to go to the cross and die in our place is to give his people new hearts. To give his people new hearts. They go from active rebels, you know, who set themselves... We, we should really speak, for those of us who've thrown ourselves on Christ's mercy, we should speak... By saying we, we go from being active rebels who've set ourselves against God as enemies to those who now cry out to him seeing our sin and grieving. And we know it's not because we're so smart and, you know, that we figured it out. It's not because we're so soft-hearted that like, okay, now I got it and, and now I'll respond the way that I'm supposed to respond. God's grace and mercy changed our hearts and moved us to that new disposition. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. How? Christ's death accomplishes this for us. His grace and mercy. It's precisely what deals with their sin and separation. Look at the final verse of this section. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, I I believe, this is referring to the day that Christ dies on the cross. Zechariah is pointing the people forward. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This sums up everything for us. 
Friends, the miracle of the incarnation is that God himself came to earth, put on human flesh, dwelled among us. The purpose for his coming was to stand in your place at the cross so that you might be reconciled to him. The outcome is to give you new hearts that now actually respond in genuine faith and repentance and faith, a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Rather than hearing about our sin and saying no and pushing it away, as painful as that is, we recognize recognize it as a good and gracious pain in which we can now repent and by faith cling to the gospel. If you're here tonight and you now recognize your sin before God, your helplessness to save yourself, the, posi- the position that you're in, you recognize the position that you're in, and if your spirit is prompting a mourning and a grieving of your sin before God, that's evidence of God's spirit at work in your life. That's evidence of the fact that his grace and mercy is being poured out because it's only by God's grace and mercy that our hearts would be prompted to mourn our sin before a holy God. And if you cry out to him to do for you what you know you can't do for yourself, if you rely and trust entirely on what he's accomplished at the cross to save you, then in your mourning, you will be comforted. You'll have life. This is, this is why at Christmas we experience, you know, we throw around these words, love, joy, peace at Christmas. See him everywhere. But we can truly say this because of our Savior who brings who brings us from death to life, who brings us from true darkness into light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So I encourage you tonight, turn on the lights that we handed out just a little bit ago. And let's read together from your liturgy John chapter 8, verse 12, and as we read it, just notice it specifically speaks about the outcome of the incarnation. The thing that we just heard about, you know, what the incarnation accomplishes in our hearts. Jesus specifically addresses it. So let's read this. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's sing together of what Christ has done for us.